Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Today, I've invited Mark Cox onto the show, and we are going to have a really cool conversation about his experience of his best boss, but also a bit about all the great selling work and sales training experience he does in his current business. Welcome, Mark. Oh, thanks, Christine. I was so excited to join you today. I love this topic. It's such a smart idea for a podcast. And just so everybody knows, where can they find you? Yeah, thank you. We're at inthefunnel.com. So I founded a company called inthefunnel.com. We help companies sell better. And I'm all over LinkedIn too. It's Mark Cox, M-A-R-K-C-O-X on LinkedIn. Amazing. And it's neat because Mark and I actually met through doing some sales transformation work together. We did a long time ago. That's right. So this is why it's really fun to reconnect with you about this leadership topic. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in. Tell us, best boss, who was it? Well, you know what? I I may not share a name because, Christine, I'm sure you've had so many guests on the show, right, where you've had so many great bosses. Like you were so privileged in all of these great bosses, maybe a couple that weren't awesome either. (laughs) But maybe just to, to protect the innocent, I won't share a name because I I'm going to share some of the attributes and some of the stories, but I, I feel like I'd be picking, you know, a favorite child. It feels like it's Sophie's choice or something. <laughs> so, so, but I definitely have somebody in mind that that was really had a huge impact on me at a really kind of pivotal stage of my career. Like I, I'm going to want to say I was probably my second or third job in professional job in. And it's just when things were starting to come together from a sales perspective. So is a really important move for me to join the company. And the main reason, of course, I joined the company was because of this boss. Amazing. So you actually, you joined the company because this person was who you wanted to work for. Yeah, I kind of grew up in the earliest days of technology, selling photocopiers. And there were a couple of companies that did that. And that evolved into something called outsourcing or facilities management. It was a big thing, kind of the mid-90s. And there were a couple of people who were real players in that space. I got exposure to competitors and people who ran those competitors' sales organizations and ultimately had an opportunity to work with one when they were part of a startup. So I knew this person and I had competed against them. I'd actually lost, but it was one of those ones where you had this, I had some interaction. And for where where I was sitting, he pretty much had, he was sort of the penultimate sales leader and salesperson and all of those kinds of things. He he looked like he was really good at almost everything he did to me. Wow. Wow. Cool. And so when you went to go work with him, can you tell me a little bit about what was it like to work with this person who you obviously looked up to from afar? First of all, it was, it was great. It was challenging and it was great. I think I'd been up to that point in my career, I'd been in a couple of organizations where I felt I probably knew as much or more than you know most of the people running the sales organizations and so forth. And this was the first time I came across somebody and I thought, boy, there's a lot to learn from this person. And so I really liked that. They were very strategic 
And they granted a lot of autonomy, but they just seemed so intentional, so so smart about everything they did. And one of the things that I loved about this fellow was I would spend a lot of time strategizing on accounts. And, you know, back in those days, you did things like Miller Hyman. You'll remember that one. Yes, definitely. By the way, for those listening, buy strategic selling today. It's still 60% of every sales book out there is Miller Hyman strategic selling. Exactly. But it so it was a good framework. And I had a framework and I'm methodical. So I'd work through deals. We were working, the deals were significant. And I remember every time I went in for a one-on-one, this fellow had the ability to ask a question that I'd never heard before and maybe didn't have a great answer to. There wasn't a lot of judgment and it was always from the client perspective, but it has these great questions. The obvious ones, you know, why is this project such a priority for the client? You know, what exactly is the return on investment for the client? How many years does it take to pay this thing back? Given everything else they're doing, why does this make the top 10? And it was with these kind of questions where he knew the answer, but didn't give it to me. He would let me kind of try and think through the answer. And all I kept thinking was I'd leave that that office going, next time I'm going to be so re- prepared. There's no question he can ask. I don't have the answer to. And then he'd do it again. <laughs> and it was all part of this learning where over the few years I was working for him, my, my ability to think through strategically a deal really elevated. And so, so and it, by the way, that feels really good at times. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bad at times. Right. Sometimes you don't know the answer. <laughs> you don't know the answer and you want to look good. And if you're impressed by the boss, you definitely want to look good. So that was one of the things that that really struck me was the one-on-ones, they'd be so intentional. I could tell he'd, he'd done it a lot, so he's very good at it. But he was pretty intentional about the way he asked questions and the way he led me through one-on-one. I was doing all the work in the one-on-one, but it was only because he was running it so well. See, and this is really at the end of the day, wouldn't you say this is the origin of great sales coaching? 100% is the, the, absolutely. Right? We're trying to inspire leaders to be thoughtful, especially sales coaches. And I think a lot of leaders think that sales coaching is following up on your numbers. You know, what's your pipeline? What's your revenue? Why aren't you getting your revenue numbers met? And then sometimes jumping to solutions, right? So lots of sales leaders say, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. Michael Bungay Stanier, I always get his name wrong, but the coaching habit. Mm-hmm. You know, a for those people out there, one of the best reads out there, so simple. So simple, yeah. But so hard. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're as sales leaders today, you know, we're all in the same boat every quarter. We're hearing, hearing that cadence. Right. We're, we're sitting down for our one-on-ones and we're really tracking the top deals that are going to get us to our number. So it's just just opportunity management as all sales management tends to become. To have someone back in those days be very strategic. And I could tell I was getting better, Christine. That was one of the things that was also so important to me. I could feel like I felt like I was getting better and I was a little outside my comfort zone and I was learning. And as we all know, like you never get tired of learning. I think I think you start to get tired of doing the same thing when you become masterful at it and it's not evolving. But if you're learning, it sort of keeps you sharp and keeps you engaged. And I wasn't the only one who found this person to be a great coach and a great leader. There were two or three salespeople in this company. And frankly, they've all gone on to amazing things, like because this was sort of a startup. But the other two two people have gone on to amazing things. But 
we'd be just pounding it out late at night and loving it. And I thought to myself, this guy's really got this team humming. Like he's got great salespeople and he's getting the most out of them is a real powerful thing. So he's asking these great questions in your one-on-ones. He's really challenging your thinking. You feel like you're getting better as a sales professional while you're working with him. So what else was he doing that really brought that, like um, the, the, brought the team together though? You, you mentioned that, and that's a little bit different than individual performance. Now you're seeing the whole team operate. What did he do to create that kind of glue? I think all of us wanted to become him. He actually made, he's one of those people who made sales management look attractive because he was so good at it. He almost made it look easy. And as you and I both know, and I'll tell you about my worst boss ever, it's not easy. <laughs> That's right. It's not easy. So so, so he, he really had us motivated because I think all of us wanted to replace him. I think most of us could have been candidates for that. And the other thing I, you know, it's it was a while back now, Christine, but one of the things I do know is he took those opportunities to make it about me, ah. not about him. And, you know, it wasn't hard for him to assess somebody like me was ambitious. So I think he was quite intentional about talking about career progression and next steps and the opportunity and all those kinds of good things. Because he was kind of this role model on a couple of different fronts where I might have looked at it being 10 years his junior and said, most of those things look pretty good to me, the way this guy's got it all sorted out. So I, I think, you know, he he spent enough time thinking about that. The other thing I, I think, given what I've done since there and some exposure, he actually was a nice person. And when you get to your stage of your career, my stage of my career, there's kind of a no jerks allowed policy in life now. There's talented people out there that are jerks. They can't come anywhere near in the funnel and we won't work for them either. Right. So based on the way I'm built, I'm not looking for my boss to be my friend or best friend, but I actually have to have respect that he's a good person or she's a good person. And for the most part, I've been really blessed in my career having lots of bosses and they were all good people. And if they weren't, by the way, I just walked out the door which I've done too. Well, absolutely. And the meat of that, what's so interesting is, again, I actually was working with a sales leader one day and he said something about, I never buy from people I don't trust. And ironically, people I trust, I like. (laughs) And so he kind of, you know, he was like, I don't need to like you necessarily to buy from you, but there's just this interesting correlation to the fact that I need to trust you. And ironically, I always like people that I trust. And I was like, that makes a ton of sense, actually. It does. And I can't, it, the book is called, Can You Hear Me? I forget the name of the professor who wrote it. But one of the things he said was, when we first meet somebody, the first thing we're trying to assess consciously and subconsciously is their intent. Mm. What's their intent? And so so I think somehow, you know, it, the old adage, which still rings true, which is, you know, they care what you know only if they know that you care. Ooh. Isn't that cool? I don't, again, these adages, who knows where I heard this? I've stolen all of this from other people. <laughs> but, um, so, so credit to anybody who said these things. But it, I think it really is that that thing is so important today, which is, hey, we'll all be held accountable. You know, we all understand we've got to perform. There's that reality. But I do want to be working with folks who have the right intent for me. 
And I want to make sure I have the right intent for the people I'm working working with and that they know it. That's really good. I love that quote. That's amazing. So now when we got on the line and I just started to dribble this idea of the worst boss ever, you kind of had a different angle on it when, when I asked you that question. So tell us a little bit about how that one popped for you. Yeah, what popped for me was I was absolutely one of the worst sales managers ever when I first started. <laughs> and as as fate would have it was very soon after being exposed to this individual where I've seen what his perfect look like. But there's no question when I first became a sales manager maybe 20 years ago, it was amazing how quickly I became miserable and the seven or eight people who reported to me became miserable. Okay. There were just such great lessons from it that I think is worth sharing. First of all, I was pretty good at selling for this particular company exactly what these people were selling. So I was a top player on the team. And then I got promoted. And so as soon as I got promoted, it seemed so logical to me that everybody should do exactly what I had just been doing, exactly the way I had been doing it. Oh, good. Seems seems so evident. Right, right. I was I was Wayne Gretzky of selling. Do it exactly, do exactly do it exactly the way I do it. And we know how that story ends, where you know I'm diminishing their unique abilities and what they're good at. They feel like they're being told what to do all the time, because I did tell them what to do all the time. They don't feel like they're getting credit for anything. I think a lot of, I probably showed that I was in over my head when I was managing the teams to begin with. So it felt like it was all about me. And maybe there was a lot of judgment coming from me to these other people because I'd just been working side by each with them. So I knew what they'd been up to and whether they'd been good or bad. So all of these things like intent, it was all in the wrong place. And it was so interesting, Christine, the story is so funny because I'm miserable, literally to the point of thinking about leaving. They're miserable. Probably thinking about leaving. (laughs) But in huge companies, funny decisions get made. So I end up getting promoted. Are you kidding? No. And so... so, You're going to really bum some people out out there. (laughs) Oh, my God. We're working for a lousy boss right now. (laughs) And and, Wow. So then I get promoted, but it it has a a happier ending. I then get promoted to run an area of the business I had no exposure to whatsoever. So now I'm I'm running a smaller team of people in a different, completely different line of business that I had no background or understanding of. So now when I'm managing this team and they're coming in saying, here's my situation, you know, here's what I'm up to, here's the three things I could do, what do you think I should do, Mark? I had no other answer except, what do you think you should do? Because mm-hmm. I didn't have five years experience of having done it all the time. So I started to be able to step away from it, to get out of the weeds and start to think about not trying to be the subject matter expert, but trying to be a better coach or a better leader. And it was kind of interesting that after these one-on-ones that I would have with people compared to the previous role I'd just been in, I wasn't looking forward to any of the one-on-ones. Every time I'd have these new ones or these meetings with people on my team, I enjoyed all of them. I was really curious as to what's going on. I really wanted them to kind of come to the table with some options and alternatives. I was authentically working through solutions with them in real time, but mostly putting it on them to come to the answer. And so they enjoyed them more. I enjoyed them more. 
And you know how this story ends. It was just great. You actually had success in that environment, not feeling like you're trying to micromanage everything and people are feeling their autonomy swept out from under them. Completely. So by way of this podcast, I think I need to apologize to everybody who's managing in that first group. They've all gone on to greater things too, by the way. They oh, and I'm sure, I'm sure it was not fun for them to see you get promoted again. <laughs> right. It, it wasn't. And, and we've stayed in, they were all great people and we've stayed in touch since then. They've done great things. I think it's a bit of a lesson also for all of those becoming the boss the first time. This fellow made that job look so darn easy, but it does take a lot of time and effort and intention to become that boss who is a great boss. It's hard. It is. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I focus on leaders that are kind of midway through their career. So I don't go after the C-suite and I don't go after entry level, but I really, you know, all the work I do is really high potential talent that's kind of sitting in that manager, director, vice president level. And I really think there's this maturity that happens through that, you know, it's a, a cocoon to butterfly maturity And to your point, you know, it's kind of like a lot of things. It looks easy as you're watching, you know, when you're doing the, what do they call it? The Monday night armchair. Armchair quarterback. Armchair quarterback. There you go. And so it's like, oh, well, you know, just do it this way. Just throw the ball here. And then all of a sudden when you're thrown out in the field, you realize that there's a million different reasons why you don't make the decision that everybody else thinks is intuitive. And so I I really like the fact that, you know, you identified yourself as a worse boss because it's the self-awareness to realize that it's actually a lot harder than it looks that probably gave you the opportunity for the maturity to happen. Well, you know, you're absolutely right, Christine. And I think the other thing it's hard for all of us when we're being managed by a bad boss, we have a tough time having any empathy for what they're going through. Because this is the other side of the coin. We have a, a boss going through a tough time. But as a direct contributor being managed, I make it all the time about me. Instead of thinking through, what are they going through as a new boss? Or what pressures do they have? What challenges do they have that they're insulating me from as a direct contributor? It, it's I think people become good at managing people over time. It's not an overnight thing. And it takes a lot of time. But I think one of the things they get is they get a little bit of a confidence um, around their judgment and their approach. And once they've got that confidence, they become a better boss because they can actually respond instead of react. And they can coach instead of inspect. Mm. And, and so they can question instead of tell. And I think the bad side of each of those coins comes when you're kind of new, oftentimes, to doing this, and you're just not as comfortable in your role. And this is a big problem, by the way, in professional sales today, because, you know, recent Gardner research says if you're you're a CRO or running a sales organization at a high level, you're 10 years, 18 months, 18 months. The first six are going to be, you know, three to six, you're caught up to going, hey, what is this business? What's going on in my team? What's the strategy? Now I got 12 months when I'm reporting to the executive team or reporting to the board or I'm out. So you don't have that. You just don't have that leeway. And I'm now I'm reacting all the time. No, I was just talking to somebody taking on that chief sales officer role. You know, I was saying to her exactly that. I said, like, these are very short runways. Like, you don't, you're going to be shocked at how little time you have to prove your impact on the sales organization. Like we're going to have 
<laughs> this is go time. Total go time. It's go time yet. On the one side, we're saying go time, and I've got to respond to a board or an executive team. I'm dealing with clients, so they're going to take all my time as a new CRO. I've got to get in front of lots of clients to understand what's going on there and put them first. And then I've got a sales team that's watching every single thing I do, and they're magnifying every action I make in the first 90 days. They're trying to figure out who is he and what's he all about and what's his value system and how do I position myself and so on and so on and so forth. It's actually one of the hardest jobs on the executive team, in my view, these days. So given all of those things, what falls off the radar first? Coaching. You're exactly right. Well, it's interesting when you say, you know, to me, coaching is something when you're in highly reactive mode, your intuition doesn't say coach. It says direct. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. When I'm under pressure, I direct and control. And when I'm more relaxed, I can coach. So I can see why coaching is the first thing to go, especially in, like I said, those sales roles are, you know, you need to prove yourself pretty, pretty quick. So you'd have the sense of urgency that you, you need to be reactive. Well, you know, you're so right. But as the leader, Christine, what do you like most doing? Absolutely. Coaching all the way. If you like coaching as I do, and you know, that the, there really is this joy of seeing people develop, you know, exceed expectations and reach their potential and then maybe replace you. There is a joy to that. I think, I think as leaders, our best bet these days is we do have to turn off the noise and just do what we know is the right thing to do. Because if you react instead of respond and do all these other things and start, you know, dancing upside down. And, you know, it's a functional equivalent of playing a sport without warming up. Bad things are going to happen anyway. So why not just do what you think you should do? And your pal, your friend who went into that new role, this is is exactly the conversation that she needs with the executive team before she takes the role. I'm going to take this thing over. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So let's say it's a couple of quarters to ramp up. Then there's going to be a dip in a quarter. Then your systems, processes, methodologies, strategies, cadence, all those things are going to come into play after that. But now we're into a year, year and a half before we start seeing things move in the right direction. I think think setting those kinds of expectations with her boss now, it's really important. And get them in writing because then I can get in. I'm not feeling that cadence 90 days in. I don't feel like the bell's ringing. And then that calmness or that approach, that leadership passes down to the team. So they can calm down and they know, okay, we've got to do the right things here and it's going to take some time. We'll set new expectations. We'll train the team, then hold them accountable, but not in 30 days. And then suddenly I think, you know, you start to see this, some cool things happen in terms of sales culture being a place that everybody wants to be a part of, but it's, it's really hard and it's hardest for the boss. Absolutely. So you can see how many people start in that (laughs) worst boss camp before they actually get a chance to achieve any kind of monumental improvement in that leadership role. So I I love that. That's very useful. So just as I'm thinking, you know, kind of tying this up, knowing that that leadership role is so important. And again, you would really know through the lens of sales organizations, given your experience, I always get asked, what's the return on investment of building best bosses, right? Can you help me understand what is the financial or numeric benefit of working for a best boss? 
Man, the leverage for for best bosses is leverage. Mm-hmm. Right. If if I have a great sales leader, then that person she's going to make the team of eight salespeople better across the board. So it's just pure leverage. So I'm going to get that whole team to be better. And by better, I mean they perform at a higher level. They're engaged. They're learning. They're dynamic. As a result of which, they make for a better business culture. It just has this ripple or domino effect the whole way down. The opposite is also true. So the worst boss at that executive team level also has a domino effect on their eight to ten direct reports. Those and so on and so forth. Down, those people are unpleasant to deal with within the organization. They stay within their job descriptions. They're not really engaged with the company. They don't want the company to do well. And so it becomes this other thing, the spiral of doom. So they they multiply that kind of toxicity across eight people, right? They do. Liz Wiseman multipliers. That's the return on investment. You know, you either have somebody who's diminishing the capabilities of everybody on the team, or they're multiplying them and it just becomes exponential. That's what I I, I really think it is. Christine, if I'm looking for a CEO today. If I am the CEO, I'm looking for teammates who are those best bosses and the the domino effects, the positive domino effects on performance, culture, retention, engagement, all of those things, client satisfaction. I think there's an absolutely direct correlation to all that stuff. All right. Any words of wisdom as we're just wrapping up all those leaders out there that are trying to learn how to keep raising the bar for themselves? Any final thoughts for them? Final thoughts, I would say, listen to this podcast. This is, I was so excited to join today, Christy. It's such a smart idea. How do you get better at managing people and leading people? Great. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for hosting me. It's been a real pleasure being on this, Christine. If you want to hear more, join me at christineleperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.